Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to welcome poet Simon Constam this evening for your quintessential listening poetry pleasure. Simon is an aphorist and a poet. His poems have been published in magazines including the Jewish Literary Journal, Poetica, and the Dark Poetry Club. For almost three years, he has published an original aphorism every day on Instagram under the moniker Daily Ferocity. His new book is out now, and it's called Simon. Brought down. Good evening, Michael. The book is called Brought Down. (laughs) That's wonderful, my friend. That's wonderful, my friend. Welcome to the program. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Yes. As I shared with you prior to the show, this was a mom-pop operation. Sometimes we forget things. It's just, you just never know. Age is catching up with me. All right. (laughs) What I'd like to know first is tell me about aphorisms. What does that mean? Well, first of all, I've been writing a a new original aphorism basically every day for the last four years. I just passed my fourth anniversary. So I've published about, uh, well, over 1,400 aphorisms in total. Uh, an aphorism um, is a saying, but uh, I take mm-hmm. a very broad view of it. And um, my view is that um, uh, anything that makes sense in a very short form, in a miniature form, is just fine. So some of my aphorisms sound very much like poems. Some of them are poems. Uh, very few of them are motivational. I'm not really interested in motivating people. I think of my aphorisms as sharp food for thought. And that's right. what I'm really trying to do with the aphorism. I'm trying to get, put something into, into one's mind that um, provokes a little bit of thought. I can give you a few examples if you like. I like that very much. Sure. One of my favorite aphorisms is snow teaches silence. I really like that a lot. Um, right. uh, I don't remember how I came up with it. I know that it was a winter's day in Toronto when I came up with it. <laughs> there was yes. lots of snow yes. around. Um, but um, I, I like that one a lot. I, I really, when I can come up with something that's short, that's pithy, I really like that. Um, beauty disrupts the quiet order of things. Uh, I like mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that one a lot. I've written a lot of aphorisms on the subject of beauty. How sad mm-hmm. to think our God is lonely. I wow. think about God a lot. And, um, yes. you know, one of the things that occurred to me recently was that um, here's a unitary figure in our minds, and uh, he must, therefore, be exceedingly lonely. I've seen it argued that um, God created humanity in order not to be lonely, but if okay. so, his lack of interaction with us must surely leave him very lonely. Um, wow. The size of one's wandering from contentment is a measure of success. Th- this is one that means a lot to me, and essentially it, it references the fact that you have to do those things which are difficult. This is the old Eleanor Roosevelt quote of do the things you cannot do. 
And um, so, so that's one that is, uh, is meaningful for me. And, and this one, Michael, love is the first draft, then revise, revise, revise. <laughs> so that gives you just a few of them and a, an idea of, uh, of what they are. I might tell you something that uh, you might find interesting. Recently, I did the very first aphorism that I've ever written on the subject of horror. And this oh, is wow. it here. We need horror, horror we can walk away from. Our art is full of it. And I mention it because over the last three or four months, that is by far the most popular and the most commented on aphorism that I've written. It took me a little aback that that, in fact, was the case. But, um, you know, one doesn't see an awful lot of writing about horror generally. I mean, in, in poetry forms, anyways, in aphoristic and poetry forms. And I do think of aphorisms as, as poems, as miniature poems. Why aphorisms, Simon? Tell me about that. How did you begin writing them? I want to know. You know, I can tell you this, that um, in writing, I I produce a lot of lines that I don't end up using. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I produce some lines which I like so much they're within poems that I I see that they have a life of their own outside the poem. And uh, it's really as simple as this. One evening, my wife came home and I Mm -hmm. said to her, I've decided to put uh, my aphorisms on Instagram. And she said, why did you do that? And I said, I have no idea. I just decided to do it. And, uh, and that's how it started. And uh, I've now been going for four years on this. Yes. And it's quite interesting. It's very interesting to do, do uh, you know, basically the same sort of thing every single day. I mean, I, when mm-hmm. I say I, I don't do it every day, uh, about one out of every tw- 25 aphorisms is taken from the past, something that I wrote in the past. Uh, sometimes I get stuck and I just have to look and see what I've, um, what I've published before. I don't take anything that's been published within the previous two years. So it's very yes. rare that somebody comes to me and says, oh, I heard that before, or I saw it before. But um, uh, that's basically it. It's a brand new one every day. And, you know, some days it's easy. Some weeks it's easy. Some months it's easy. And some days mm-hmm. it is just torture. Uh, you know, I look yes, and I can't find anything from the past and I can't find anything from what I've got in my bank, which is about another 3,000 aphorisms. And uh, it's very difficult, but I always seem to come up with something. And, and it is true, you know, that it's like anything else in that it, when you do it each and every day, it becomes easier and easier. You know, that, that, that is certainly true. But some days it's just torturous. It's really, wow. really very difficult. But I continue with it. And, you know, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do when I reached the fourth year, the end of the fourth year. Yes. But I just, yes. I've decided now that I'll keep going just as long as I can. And I may very well come to a day where I just say, that's it. I'm giving up. I'm not going to go any further. So but please, um, <laughs> please share a few more. Share a few more. Sure. Um, one holds finally everything in a single breath. Rebellion, acceptance, the view from unsettled age back to unsettled youth. And only then, because it is obvious, we can assume of the dark night of the soul that there is nothing that it has taught us. And uh, here's another one, Michael. I was going to a Toronto Raptors game. I'm a big basketball fan. And I went on, I went on the subway and I'm coming up from, a, from the subway and there's this, you know, kind of the last step before you reach the outside. And, um, and something I saw disturbed me deeply. I couldn't get it out of my mind uh, the entire um, game. And um, when I got home, I wrote this aphorism. Love is not enough to compensate for human sadness. If you have been loved, perhaps 
you disagree. If you have ever seen a person folded between a dark wall and a cold sidewalk, hand extended, you will almost certainly at least have considered your own happiness as insufficient compensation. Your aphorisms, based on what I've heard so far, there seems to be a melancholy tone. Am I correct? You're correct, and it's not just in my aphorisms. It's in my poetry okay. as well. Um, I'm actually, All I've right. got a very sunny personality, but a lot of my writing is, um, is somewhat, somewhat quiet All and, right. uh, and uh, mournful a little bit, but, um, yeah. Not a problem. Everything has to be no. everything has to be um, looked at deeply. You know, I think that yes, that's I do. that's really important um, to, to not look at things superficially. And uh, you know, quite yes. often when when people ask me, um, you know, what they should do about their poetry, my reply is look deeper. Look yes, deeper. so important. It's, it's really important so to do that. Important. Yeah. Well, let's continue this journey. You're an aphorist as well as a poet. And your book brought down. You know, I'm surprised why I could not remember the title because I've been thinking about the words brought down over the course of the last several days and asking myself, well, what does he mean by that? Is it brought down to earth? Is it brought down for some other reason? I just well, had an inquiry in mind that I wanted to know, to be honest. Tell me about the yeah, title. The, the, impetus, the impetus for it um, is something that one hears um, in Orthodox Jewish circles in, in when studying the Torah or the Talmud. And basically it refers to the fact that one brings down from heaven an idea, mm-hmm. brings down okay. um, a, a thought or uh, a way to behave and so on. Um, the reason I chose it as the title of the book was that it has many other meanings. And one of them is brought low, that you are diminished when you're brought down. Uh, and there are others as well. And I just thought that the um, the several meanings that brought down can have worked out quite well. And once I had come mm. up with the title, um, a couple of more poems sprung to life just from that. Um, so that's basically the impetus was, in a sense, religious to begin with. And yes. um, but I, I saw that it had a much wider application as well. All right. You know, yeah. we've got the title. What inspired you to dive so deep into such thoughtful issues? And as you talk about the issues, some of the issues are, but what inspires you, my friend? Well, first of all, I wrote this book over 12, 13 years, and I didn't Mm -hmm. start out to write it. I simply was writing poems that occurred to me. And at a certain point in time, I realized that they began belong together. Um, So I didn't Mm -hmm. have any particular intention. Um, The one thing that um, fueled much of it was that for a 10-year period, Basically, from 1985 to 1995, I was a very religious Jew. I wore the yarmulke for a long time. I wore the tzitzis, the, the um, uh, strings that, that, you know, the, the garment, basically, that one, one wears under one's shirt. Uh, and, um, and I went to synagogue more or less every day, and I kept the, uh, the laws, the kashrut laws, the laws of keeping kosher, and I kept the Sabbath and so on. I, I would say that I was an imperfect observer. I wasn't perfect. I tried very hard. Um, there came a time when I could no longer do it, but the impact on those 10 years was quite severe on me and, and quite acceptable. And I, let me say exhilarating as well. I learned an enormous amount. Um, the reason that I became Orthodox was that I was living um, in a small town 
And I had four children, and I was very concerned that the children had a Jewish education. And um, so I, I began to study. And when I had the opportunity to be involved with Orthodox Jews, specifically Lubavitchers, they're one of the Hasidic sects, I, I took it. I wanted to do it. And um, it was about that time uh, my father passed away. And my mother was coming from Toronto out to BC, where I was living, to stay with us. And so we kushered the home. We made the home kosher. <clears throat> and I began to get more and more involved in it. And uh, I felt that my childhood education was relatively thin. So I really put my mind to it and worked hard at it. And, um, you know, I, I started to be able to fit in virtually anywhere in the Jewish world, from Reformed Jews to Conservative Jews to Orthodox Jews. I felt comfortable amongst all of them. I understood the liturgy. liturgy. Um, I, you know, could read the prayer book without a problem. And, uh, you know, so all of these things were, were pretty impactful on me. And many of these poems came from that, um, from that period of time. But some of them also came from other experiences I had. Um, the, the book is um, ostensibly Jewish. Um, it does have a glossary at the back. But I've had it read by many, many non-Jewish people, and they've uniformly told me that they can get a lot out of it, that it, it doesn't, the Jewishness doesn't dissuade them in any way. Oh, wow, very nice, very nice. So some of the issues that you address in the book, specifically, what are some of the issues? Well, why don't I give you a little bit of background on the first poem that I'm going to read? Okay. Uh, and I think right. this, this will be interesting. So the poem is called Text. And uh, it references um, various rulings that have come down that um, suggest how women should behave in, the public, in a public environment. And in the Orthodox community, for example, um, in the Hasidic community that I was involved, uh, men don't shake women's hands who aren't their wives. Um, men would not be caught in, um, in a home that doesn't belong to them with a woman unless there was, uh, the husband was present, for example. Um, th this, these are, are things which didn't really sit well with me. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and just to give you a sort of corollary thing here, um, my son was about six months old and a Turkish friend of mine had invited me over to his place and I went to his place and it was raining, it was pouring. I had a long drive to get there. And when I got there, I knocked on the door. My son was in my arms and um, uh, the, the, my, my friend's wife was there and she said, I'm very sorry, you can't come in. And I said, why not? And she said, because so-and-so is not here. Now, this particular fellow was Turkish, but uh, that's neither here nor there. It's a similar, very similar kind of thing. And I said, listen, I, you know, there, you've got two floors. I'll stay downstairs. You can go upstairs. And she said, no, I'm very sorry, but I can't let you in. So I called him up. He had been delayed. And I said, said listen, you know, she won't let me in. And he said, what are you talking about? You have no right to go in. You can't be in the same house as my wife without me there. And I was furious with him. And it took me quite a while to, to understand why he felt that way, that it was the cultural imperative that he had grown up with. I still don't agree with it, but nevertheless, I, I have an understanding of it. And I saw more of that in my time uh, as an observant Jew. So that's one of the issues, the issues of the, the role of men and women um, in society. That's one of the issues as well that I deal with in the book. And, uh, and a number of others as well, not the least of which is um, just, you know, my feelings about God, which are quite contradictory. Wow. You know, I'm going to stray from the script 
in terms of what I asked you tonight. In terms of being a poet, tell me, what is poetry? <clears throat> well, I have a very simple definition of poetry, and, and it's really one that um, Carol Ann Duffy, the um, one-time uh, British poet laureate, um, uh, wrote, and that was that poetry is uh, an intense experience. So okay. what I'm trying to do in my writing is to, to convey an intense experience, to, to give an intense experience. I'm not okay. stuck on... Um, prosody on what a poem should be, rhyming, not rhyming, uh, prose poetry, whatever. I mean, I have my preferences uh, in those things, but as far as uh, what poetry is, I think that poetry is basically anything that makes an impact on you uh, of whatever length. Um, and uh, so I'm not, I'm not troubled at all by uh, the, um, the idea that some things might be poetry and some things might not be poetry. In fact, I think if one could really look at it clearly, it's probably not the right question. Um, the right question might be what makes poetry good? What makes it impactful? Um, but I don't, I really don't worry about it. I've written some poems and in various workshops, people have said, well, that's not a poem. Well, okay. okay, that's fine. You know, if you don't think it's a poem, I'd have no problem with that. But for me, it's mm -hmm. a poem. So, okay. you know, I, the, the, the definition is obviously very, very fluid, and I don't have any problem with that. Whatever a person thinks is a poem is fine by me. It's true. I mean, whatever you feel is a poem, is a poem. So, again, why is it important, the art form, the craft? Well, I, it, I think it's an art form that's practiced by many more people than any other art form in the world. Um, okay. One goes to the internet and there are a massive number of people who are writing poetry and putting it onto the internet, for example. And then there are many, many people, I'm sure, who write poetry and don't put it on the internet and don't, don't publish it or tell their friends about it or anything along those lines. It also makes an impact that other art forms cannot. And it's an, it's an impact that relates to meaning. It's an impact that relates to music. It's an impact that relates to juxtaposition, to metaphor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, you can get a certain amount of that in prose, but I think that there's a great deal that can only be had through poetry. And uh, I think that it's very important that it survive, and I think it will survive without any difficulty at all. Um, and also, it is, it's easy to write for many people. You know, many people um, confuse it with uh, personal therapy or personal expression. Uh, I don't think it's that, but I have no problem if that's what people think it is. But it allows them that leeway to write in the matter of a few lines, three lines, two lines, ten lines, twenty lines, something that is really important to them and their lives. And I think that the ease with which one can confront poetry and the ease with which one hears poetry, because we hear it every day in conversation, for example, um, I think that um, you know that's something that makes it um, uh, quite dramatically different from other forms of, of art. You don't have to be a painter. You don't have to write a novel. You know, you can do something that's relatively short. You can work on perfecting it. You know, you can perfect uh, uh, five or six or seven lines or at least come close to it with a poem. So I think that it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an art form that is uh, unlike others. And I think that it is um, very much destined to, um, to, to strive and probably unlike mm -hmm. any way that, that I can imagine. But still, I think right. that that's important. Yeah. Well, now that there's a sense of grounding in terms of what poetry is and why, why it's important, there's a couple more questions about the book before we move into your work. Sure. 
What did you learn about yourself writing this book? <clears throat> well, people have suggested to me that I was working out my relationship with God. And, <laughs> and that, right. that may right. be true, but I didn't succeed if so. Um, my relationship with God is still very tumultuous. And uh, so I, I really didn't work out anything um, in that regard. Did I work out something with regards to my own kind of destiny or my feeling about myself? No, I don't think so. I think I just write poems and I see where they end up and I see whether they're meaningful to me. But they didn't make an enormous effect on me um, in, in psychological terms or anything like that. I mean, I'm very happy to have a book published and I hope to have several more published. But, uh, yes. you know, it, it didn't make a, a massive change in my um, in my personality, I don't think. I think I'm just okay. as obstreperous as I've always been and, uh, okay. and uh, right. perhaps more so, yeah. All right. You know, so if you had to advise someone, a potential reader, prior to reading the book, what would you tell them? How would you set the stage? What would you want them to know? Well, I, I'd ask them to read the poems slowly. I'd ask them to read the mm -hmm. poems out loud. I'd ask them to think about them and uh, to go as deeply as they can into them. Um, that's my hope for, for this particular book and for my other poems as well. And I'd ask them to try to accept that the poem is not the poet. You know, um, in, in my poetry, for example, when I use the word I, I'm not talking about me. It's not me. It's a, it's a narrator. I'm using I as a device. You know, we, we don't have any problem uh, in, with fiction where the, the writer is using the word I, writing in the first person. We don't assume that that person is the, is the author of the book. But we have an assumption that we make that if the poet is saying I, that it's the poet. It's not. It's certainly not in my case. You know, oh. I write things that, um, uh, and you know, this, this, by the way, is something where I, I, I've occasionally had some a bit of a challenge with my wife when, when we first met and she started to read my poetry and she started to hear the stuff that I was writing. She wondered whether I was talking about our relationship and whether I was talking about her. And I had to reassure mm -hmm. her that that wasn't the case. And now mm -hmm. it's not a problem now. She understands. But, um, you know, she was worried that the neighbors might think that some right. of these aphorisms or some of these poems were uh, revealing our relationship. Well, I like the fact that you claim a sense of self, that this is my view. Uh, that's so important. Because as we both know, your view is totally, potentially totally different than mine or someone else's. So claiming it makes it personal and it makes it authentic in my mind. It makes it authentic. I, I appreciate that. Yes. Please share a poem. Okay, I'm going to read the poem I referred to earlier called Text. And I'll just take a quick sip of water, if you don't mind. And... Oh, not at all. I need one, too. <laughs> okay. Text. Rabbi Aharon Zalman Lieb brought down that a wife should be allowed to be present in a room unaccompanied with a man not her husband if the general society deems the man to be worthy of such trust. So doctors she may be with, lawyers she may be with, policemen investigating a crime she may be with, delivery men she may not. She must transact the exchange of money for parcel at her open front door. 
The issue of plumbers and repairmen, on the other hand, is a difficult one. Women should be wary. Passers-by may well interpret incorrectly. This is not to say that exceptions are not possible for the representatives of well-known companies, but all agree that cousins, brothers-in-law, and the friends of husbands are not permissible. So he ruled. Now, it is true that some have disputed Reb Lieb's pronouncements. The philosopher Eliezer Greenshaft, Zion of a great rabbinical house, himself a God-fearing man, looked up into the sky within which the world floats and saw as perfectly legible as if on paper God's intention. Eliezer seated himself at the great oak table his family had owned for more than 200 years and brought down onto the page the idea that women should be free of all rules and restrictions such as Reb Lieb had promulgated. Some say that we do not think our own thoughts, nor dream our own dreams, that there is a heavenly text from which we draw the days of our lives. And though we act upon each other, we cannot be assured that what we think is causing good is not rather deeply wounding. We know that holiness lies in every place we look. Therefore, if it is true that our understanding is incomplete, Regardless, our behavior never seems to be uncertain. And if our belief is too unflinching, we may never even need to understand the world which is. How hard it is to sit at a desk observing both text and city streets. Often the two do not reconcile to anyone's satisfaction. Why would God respect two views inimical toward each other? And is there anywhere a trial which will settle the matter? Oh, Holy One, must we resolve ourselves in you? The distance is too great, and you are so different from us. We must settle this in ourselves. Now is when you should stand back, not allow yourself to be invoked or quoted. And that's the end of the poem. That incident with your friend's wife, really yes. affected you. It did really affect me. And I saw that oh, sort of thing um, uh, in other circumstances as well. Okay. All right. But All right. I, if I could just make a, a, a note about this poem, I'll tell you a, a yes. short story that, um, that I heard during my religious years. And it's about a man in ancient times, who uh, this is during Roman times, who comes to the Sanhedrin or the council and he says, I have made a stove, I've built a stove, and um, I would like you to rule on whether this stove is kosher or not. In other words, whether the, the stove is fit for Jewish use. And mm-hmm. so they took the stove and they, they looked at it and they considered it from a number of different angles. And they finally came back to him and they said, it's not kosher. No, you cannot give it to Jews or sell it to Jews. And at that point, the sky opened up and with a thunderous roar, God came down into the Sanhedrin council room, and he said, you're mistaken, it is kosher. They talked amongst themselves, and finally they replied to God, this is our decision, not yours. And I think it's a very interesting um, uh, expression, manifestation of this idea 
that there are many things which are not referable to God, which should not be yes. taken to God for a judgment. They should be mm-hmm. resolved amongst ourselves. And that is in big part what that, what that poem is about. So putting it on paper, writing it down, how did that relieve some of the angst, some of the energy that you had? How did that help? <laughs> well, if it relieved any energy, it didn't tell me, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> really, I, okay. I don't find the person does that <laughs> I, I so it's still, it's still inside, a, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for being honest. <laughs> what I'd like yeah. to know, <laughs> what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Well, I started to, um, to look at poetry in my early teens. Um, I should say that I came by it honestly. Uh, my father loved poetry. He particularly loved um, Goethe, and um, uh, and you know he spoke and, and read German fluently. And uh, he, he never read that poetry to me, but he often talked about it. Um, my great uncle was a translator of uh, the Yiddish poet Yehoash, and um, yeah. I, I read some of his poetry. But what really got me into it was reading about Arthur Rimbaud. Arthur Rimbaud was a French poet. He lived from 1854 to 1891. Um, he stopped yes. writing poetry much earlier than, than his death. He eventually became, I believe it was a slave trader in Yemen. Um, he, wrote, mm-hmm. he wrote brilliant poetry at the age of 15, 16, 17. And uh, it really took me by storm. It just overwhelmed me. And at the same time, I was also reading Samuel Beckett. I was reading his poetry, the great oh, Irish oh. playwriter and poet. Yes. And, um, yes. Yeah, and, and his his work was was really quite nihilistic, and um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, waiting for Godot is his most famous play, and, and very very much an exemplar of his uh, his attitude towards uh, towards the world. My mother told me that I I locked myself in my room for two weeks, and I don't remember doing that, but the, she told me that I did that that when I was really bound up with uh, with those two, with Samuel Beckett and Arthur Rimbaud, that uh, that I did that. So uh, you know, perhaps that's true. I don't know. I don't remember it. Yeah. You know, I referenced Godot in one of my poems. Ah. So I, I know his work, yes. <laughs> that reminded me of it. All right, all right. I took my daughter when she was about 13, my middle daughter, I took her to see Waiting for Godot, the live performance yes. of it. And uh, we got <laughs> oh, to about halfway through the first half, and she turned to me and said, can we go now? <laughs> the context of waiting for Godot I thought was pretty funny and we did end up you leaving know. at half time yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. you know Simon all great writers have great writing influences and you just talked to who are some of the other people that you like that helped you in terms of framing who you are as a poet yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I can tell you the poets whom I really love. I'm not sure to what degree they influenced me, but maybe they okay, did. Um, okay. I've often thought that that whole issue was um, uh, kind of misconstrued. But anyways, um, uh, W.H. Auden, um, I just absolutely love W.H. Auden. Um, Wallace Stevens is another. Um, Kafafi, um, in your interview with uh, Indran, um, 
I think it was last week, uh, he mentioned Kafafi as well. And Kafafi is a big, big uh, um, a favorite of mine. So those were those mm-hmm. were three whom I really, really liked. Yeah, I still right. really, I still read them. Uh, I, I read them mm-hmm. fairly often. Please share another poem. I'm going to read another poem from the book, and uh, this one is quite different. This is um, uh, from uh, the, the Bible or the Torah. It's called The Plague of Frogs. Um, so, uh, you know, being Jewish, every year we celebrate Passover, and uh, mm-hmm. the celebration of Passover, we recite the ten plagues. And we also spill a drop of wine for each one. Um, uh, and the plague of frogs always, for some reason, I don't really know why, had, uh, had an impact on me. I, I, could just, I could see it more clearly, something like that. So um, I, I read um, various midrashic accounts of the plague of frogs, and um, by midrashic I mean um, commentary in the oral Torah or the parts of the Torah that weren't originally written down. So this one is called the plague of frogs. From the streams and small still ponds that decorated the homes of princes came an army of frogs. And from the great mother Nile, one hideous supersized frog emerged and moved down the main dirt road toward the pharaoh's palace. And the enormous frog opened its mouth and vomited a thunderous flood of frogs, frogs of all sizes, green, black and green, yellow and shades of all the other colors of the universe, and cacophony, a croaking, shrieking din, and an unbearable, inescapable stench. Hundreds upon thousands of the frogs leapt into the homes of the Egyptians and even into Pharaoh's palace, streaming through its entrances, through the palace hallways, skittering on the polished floors, leaping into every room and even into the pharaoh's own private chambers where he lay trying to block out the defiling noise and struggling to remove the very idea of them from his eyes and nostrils and mouth. They jumped onto his bed. He could not escape. They buried themselves beneath the linens, biting him, intruding even into his body's orifices, even the pharaoh's body. And the frogs descended upon every Egyptian house and into every open jar and pot and cupboard they went in every corner of Egypt and tunneled into every person's clothing, not an Egyptian child, nor was an Egyptian mother spared, not a room was without them. And the Egyptians ran out into the streets, but even there they could not escape the frogs. And some Egyptians went mad and many died until the moment God, may his name be for a blessing, took pity on them. And the frogs withered and shrank and disappeared, each and every one, until only the stench remained and the pharaoh lay humbled in his bed. When morning came, pharaoh's ministers took their places at his side to report one piece of happy news. Through many years, a dispute had raged between Egypt and the people of Cush over a small tract of southern land. The people of Cush would not relinquish their claim to it. War had once or twice been waged, but no result had been attained. But now, now the truth was known. The people on the disputed land 
had also been deluged by frogs, they but not those just to the south of them. The land, it could now be said with certainty, was Egyptian. And that's the end of that poem. You know, Simon, so much synchronicity tonight. Last week, I read about the plagues. Ah. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I chose that to read about. Maybe it was to prepare me for your poem tonight. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> These kinds of confluences take place, know. they do. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'd like you to share with me the titles of five of your poems. Just randomly choose five. From the book or, or from wherever? From wherever. From wherever. The book, wherever, actually. Okay. Um, let's see here. Somehow it is God who prays to us. And I have another poem entitled God's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And a poem called A Better Wife. Mm-hmm. And I have a poem, uh, the title of which is M. Simply okay. M. All right. Give me one more. <laughs> one more. Let's see here. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> non-plus. <laughs> non-plus. That's another one. So the rest of your poems are untitled. <laughs> which is fine. Which is fine. <laughs> I, I do have one or two untitled poems, but but only because oh, I can't you? think of the title. But uh, <laughs> okay. Well, that's fine. I just what I want to know from you is what role should a title play for a poem? What's important to consider when you're titling poems? Well, I think, first of all, it, it, um, it varies. I think that uh, there are times okay. where the title can be a good introduction to the poem. There are, title, uh, there are titles where um, they reflect the subject matter. Uh, and there are titles which can operate in many other ways. And uh, so I, I don't have any hard and fast rule. Um, you know, it's like mm-hmm. so many other things, uh, Michael. Um, I'm waiting for the poem to tell me <laughs> what the title is. I'm waiting for the poem to tell me what it's about. Um, when mm-hmm. I write, um, it takes me typically a long time to finish a poem. And that's typically years. I mean, every once in a while I write something and it just comes and, you know, it's right there, but that's rare. Most of the poems that I write take several years to write. And that means I'm living with them for a long time. And the ideas pop up here and there about how to continue with them or how to add something or how to detract something. Um, but um, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I, I'm really waiting for the poem to tell me what it should be called. And, and I think, you know, sometimes I don't agree with what the poem is telling me. <laughs> yes, but, uh, yes. You know, I don't have a hard and fast rule. As you can see, I don't really have a hard and fast rule about a lot when it comes to poetry. <laughs> I try to let the world, the world or the universe or God or, you know, whatever it is, um, uh, invade me and come to me. And uh, it, mm-hmm. it does sometimes bother me because, you know, sometimes it's pretty pretty sorrowful stuff and uh <laughs> just how it is yeah right. <laughs> well another aphorism if it ain't broke don't fix it so uh continue what you're doing yeah. let's take a brief break and we'll be right back Thank you. 
right, we are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Simon Constant. Simon, please. Yep. Is it okay if I read a poem um, that is not in the book? Yes, yes, please. Okay, this poem I've had some very interesting reactions to. Um, I'm going to start off by saying that this is not about me. It's not about my wife or my ex-wife. And and therefore, I don't really know where it came from. Um, All right. It came from some from some strange place. And but uh, uh, when I when I was writing it and when I finished it, I felt that it was a a fairly important poem. Um, So I'll read it to you and you can tell me. And and if you think I'm wrong, feel free. (laughs) I will. A better a better wife. Okay, This is a better wife. Someone who dined alone tonight dreamed a wife who had not died, dreamed a better wife. It was a moment he did not want to hold on to. The phrase embarrassed him, a better wife. He turned away to try to hear a different voice within himself. But at the visitation, he told her closest friend she could be picky. It was an insignificant accusation that both of them understood to be less than what he meant. I don't remember her that way, she had replied. They were late, he said, serving the secondo and contorno the night she died. She had no patience for delay, and on this occasion she was particularly angry. It didn't kill her, of course, but the doctor said it might have been a factor. At home, In the silence of his home, a better wife, the words came back to him. What can I possibly have meant by that? He said aloud. Why did I have this thought today? And why do I have it again now? She could be picky. She could be ill-tempered. She was impatient in many things, in bank lineups, in parking lots, when the children were still young and oftentimes in bed. But now he's told his wife's best friend and it will be remarked upon in several houses before the week is out. All his married life, he scarcely noticed faults in her that now he seemed incapable of not revealing to himself. And if he felt she hovered, hovered nearby still, he thought the revelation must somehow also be her doing. This is what you really felt about me, she was saying. I wish you'd had more courage. I wish that you'd been stronger. He wished the same himself. He wished he could think of her passing as the loss of heaven, but he knew the truth and dreaded it. He wished he'd had a better wife. Conclusion, that's it. Yeah. That was beautiful. And extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. Extremely touching. You know, um, the, emotion. Okay, please. Yeah, the, the um the reaction to it has in very general terms, um mm-hmm. the, the women have have found it um confusing and the men have nodded uh, as if they understood completely. And uh, almost always uh, those men have had, from what I can see and from what I know, very good um, marriages. 
love their wives, yes. love their wives, and so on. But yet they mm-hmm. understood this. And um, yes. and the reason I, I think that it you know that it's reasonably important is that we all have contrary thoughts. We all mm-hmm. have them. We have them in every circumstance where we can't adhere to the cultural uh, expectations, where we can't think exactly like we're supposed to think or feel exactly like we're supposed to feel. A love, for example, it, it's quite clear that, you know, we're expected to love in a positive way all the time, but that's not always the case. That doesn't happen. Sometimes we have grave doubts and sometimes we have yes. grave anger. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I think that that it touches a little bit into those, those areas. Well, again, it's very emotional to me. I'll claim it. You also write about God in your work, and that's very emotional as well. It is, yeah. I, I uh, you know, listen. I'm not, I'm not uh, the most spiritual of people, and, uh, and I, you know, okay. I'm not, um, I'm certainly not the most observant or religious of people, not in the least. But you know, I believed mm-hmm. in God experientially since I was very, very, very young, and uh, and that has never changed. And I, I didn't come to God intellectually. Um, I understand I can't make an argument that is going to make someone else believe in God, and I don't have mm-hmm. any desire to do so. Um, but my experience of God and with God um, is, is very intense and has always yes. been very intense. Yeah. I can tell. I can tell. Shall I read, shall I read a poem um, that I wrote about God? And uh, maybe I'll just tell you that. Uh, let, me, let me ask this question really quickly. <laughs> sure. I was going to this question. That word emotion, and this is what I want to know. Do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Yes, I think they can. I think that they can look Tell deeply in the, in the areas that they, um, they feel most comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. It could have to do with uh, a poetry that relates to medicine or to illness or to science or any number of other things. I don't think that um, emotions have to play a, a, a significant role in, in, in it. For me, they do. But uh, yes. I don't think that that has to be the case for everybody. I mean, one of the things right. that, uh, you know, I've had to accept as I get older is that um, there are all kinds of things that people write which, you know, go right past me for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to dismiss them. I don't want them to make it as if they are unimportant um, mm-hmm. or any, any um, less important than anything that I write. So, yes. uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think one has to see that poetry can be all things. I know I answer so many of your questions this way. I apologize for that. You know, I am, no, I am no. I'm, I'm very opinionated, <laughs> but I think I'm opinionated on the open side of things. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> You're fine. We started off rocky, but hey, we're in a groove now. Uh, <laughs> please, please share your poem. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. All right. This poem is, is from the book again. Uh, it's called Almighty. You're a Taurus scroll, you're a mountain rock, you're a page filled with ancient talk, you're two brilliant blue sapphire blocks. You're a temple wall, an empty ark, you're masquerading as the dark. You're a writer gone mad, a writer gone to ground, a writer on the lamb. You don't want to be found. You're a palimpsest, an all-too-fallible psychotherapist. You're a brazen monologist a single, lonely witness to the event. We won't stop looking for you wherever you went. 
You will be who you will be. You're a blue screen. You're the ocean depth in the blue of the midday sun. Your throne is all that's left of you. See it from here. You never talk back. You're a divine hack. You should be better than that. So I've had I've had a lot of um, experience with this poem. Um, I didn't read it uh, to others for the longest time um, because you know I I I don't I don't get a I don't get pleasure from uh, speaking to God harshly. Um, but but um, I I you know I think it's important to bring that under the umbrella of belief in God as well. So I don't, you know, I don't hesitate any longer to read it, read it aloud. Very nice. Because you've mashed up two of my questions into one. And I'll ask part of it. Does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? <clears throat> it hurts me not to write poetry. Okay. Um, I, 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 do right. find, I do find it very difficult to write poetry at times, and other times it's very easy. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, it hurts me. I mean, you know, I've brought this on myself. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I write every day for a few minutes every day or a couple of hours or whatever it is. But when I can't or when I don't, it bothers me. Um, I feel that I have um, a, a lot still to write. I, I, in a sense, I came to poetry very late. Um, after um, I, I wrote a, a, a book, a small book of poetry, um, and at the age of 21... I um, mm-hmm. sent it off to the League of Canadian Poets. And um, this guy, so this guy, the director, calls me up and he says, I just read the, your book and it's fantastic. It's incredible. It's wonderful. It's like, you're amazing. You're this, you're that, all of these things. And he said, I've got to see you right away. And I said, okay, shall I come next week? He said, no, today. Come now, come today. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to see him the next day. And I realized immediately that um, he was trying to convince me to join his university writing course and I was so so um, I, I was so I don't know what the word is I was insulted I was insulted that all the praise that he had lavished on me was intended to get me to join his course and you know something yep. you know what I did Michael I gave up writing that's what I did and I gave it up come on about seriously you gave years. it up yep. I gave it up completely and um, and it was many years later before um, I went back to it it was about 38 years actually um, before I went back to it. And, you know, in my mind's eye, it was as if I I'd buried something in the back of the backyard and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, a, a box with all of this writing and, and all of these feelings and so on. I kept reading poetry. I read po- poetry throughout this time and bought poetry books and so on. But, um, you know, I went back and I dug this thing up and I started looking at it and I started writing again. And that was about oh, 15 wow. years ago. And uh, so I've been I've been writing. I'm 73 now. So you know I you, was um, come on man seriously. <laughs> yeah, I'm 73. I, I, I didn't was think about that. 57 <laughs> or 58. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm 59, so I'm right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I said that you had mashed up two questions in one for me. I'm going to go ahead and ask this one because you stated that the point that you just shared, you've not you've learned to share it. You've embraced it because you've written it and you've learned to share it. The question right. would have been, oh, yes, tell me about a poem you are proud of writing but afraid to share for fear of misinterpretation. 
Well, that, I, that was, listen, yeah, I can, I can answer that. I, I, I wrote particularly um, in, uh, when I came back to poetry. Um, my mm-hmm. marriage was just ending. And, um, mm-hmm. and I was horny as hell, Michael. And, um, right. and I wrote, wrote a lot of sexual poems. Okay, okay. <laughs> and, right. uh, and I don't have an awful lot oh, of life. I did keep a few of them. But um, I would not read them. Uh, I would not read them aloud. Um, okay, <laughs> they're private matters. But any other things, no, no problem. But uh... <laughs> well, if you had planned to read one, I would have rated this program R, so people would have known. So right. uh, I guess we're safe tonight. All right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have a laugh at my own jokes. Uh, some poets claim, Simon, that a poem is like a living creature. What is out there that like you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form? What is your take on the editing process? Well, I edit all the time, and I, I edit poems okay. that I've written and, and have you know, set aside as completed. I still go back to them, and I, and I edit them. Um, I believe that revision is um, really very, very important. Um, I was influenced by Isaac Babel, the great Russian short story writer, and um, he was an inveterate revisor. And um, I, it's really important to me to revise. I rarely think that I've got anything down uh, from, the first, uh, from the first version of a poem. I mean, once in a while I do. Um, I could actually read you a poem that I, I've really not revised at all, um, which okay, is a rarity it. for me. Shall I do that? Okay, let me yes. just uh, let me find it here. Hang on a sec. Okay. Now, don't start cussing. We might tell you. <laughs> no, 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 no worries about that. No worries about that. I All just right. wanted to answer your question honestly. And, you know, my wife's not listening because she had a, a business meeting, but she will, um, she will hear this. And she, will, she, will say, uh, she will say, I have to see those poems, and I probably will not show them to her. <laughs> well, she'll be proud of you tonight. I'm proud of you. Just being All right. First. I'm going to read you a poem called A Boy in a Forest. And um, this is a poem. Again, uh, it's Genesis. I don't really know. This also relates Mm -hmm. to this whole thought of of being brought down. I have this sense, you know, that that all the poems that have existed and that exist and are going to exist are in the heavens. And what we really do Mm -hmm. is we bring them down. And in the process of bringing them down, I have a sense that we don't get them completely right. We don't hear them correctly. You know, we get an old version of it and it needs to be revised or whatever. And that's where the revision comes in. But one has mm-hmm. the, a strong idea. I have the strong idea that I don't necessarily write these, that I bring them down. And I think a lot of writers have that sense that they're not quite sure where um, their art comes from. You know, just not yes. entirely sure. So this poem is called A Boy in a Forest. In a poem's moment, a single birch emerges as a forest parts to let it be seen. Beside it, a small, toe-headed boy turns to look at the path down which he may have just come running. Several voices can be heard and a name. We will learn nothing more about this. The poem says confusion is part of the world and that putting his hand on the tree the boy wants to deny this as he imagines meaning. The poem hears the wind as well and feels the evening approaching in the darkening clouds that can be seen if you look upwards, but also felt profoundly 
without raising one's eyes at all. A squirrel, its cheeks bulging, has stopped to look at the boy. The poem asks us not to be misled by this. The boy would like to speak to the squirrel. The boy, it appears, has been crying. But the poem seems to want us to ignore this, and it begs that we not take anything more away than what it tells us. We may feel it necessary to try to describe something that is indecipherable. We would like to know what that is precisely, but the poem will not tell us. Mm. Suddenly, the poem, with a fierce rain about to fall, cannot separate the idea from the images and does not even recognize the voices it hears itself speaking. It begs us to stay with it, but as we quietly close the book and move away, we see that in the end, the poem is tethered to the boy, and they will be all right. They will make a path to safety. The end. Poetry called you home, in a sense, 15 years ago. It wanted you to come back. Absolutely. It wanted you to come back. So do you think you were meant to be a poet? I think so. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, do I believe in destiny? I don't know, not really. But um, yeah, I think that it was, it was there. Um, I wish I would have taken more from my father from what my father had to offer me about poetry. Yes. I remember mm-hmm. one of the one of the most significant, if not perhaps the most significant poetry experience I ever had was in bed one night when I was maybe eight or nine years old, and my father came and sat beside me, and he read me The Highwayman by Alfred Noyes. Mm-hmm. Do you know that poem at all? Yes, I do. It's a fantastic do you have poem. It, do you have it that you could share with us tonight? I think I can pull it up very quickly. All right. Yeah. I love it. It's been a long yeah. time. My, since da- my, dad had, uh, my dad had a very deep voice. And um, mm-hmm. it scared it scared the bejesus out of me. This poem really. <laughs> um, well, if if it gets too long, you'll just stop me. But um, okay, I will. I will. Okay, I will. the highwayman. The wind was a torrent of darkness among the gusty trees. The moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. The road was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor, and the highwayman came riding. Riding, riding, the highwayman came riding up to the old inn door. He'd a French cocked hat on his forehead, a bunch of lace at his chin, a coat of the claret velvet and breeches of brown doe skin. They fitted with never a wrinkle. His boots were up to the thigh, and he rode with a jeweled twinkle, his pistol butts a twinkle, his rapier hilt a twinkle under the jeweled sky. Over the cobbles he clattered and clashed in the dark inn-yard. He tapped with his whip on the shutters, but all was locked and barred. He whistled a tune to the window, and who should be waiting there? But the landlord's black-eyed daughter, Bess, the landlord's daughter, plaiting a dark red love-knot into her long black hair. And dark in the dark old inn-yard, a stable wicked creaked, where Tim the ostler listened. His face was white and peaked. His eyes were hollows of madness, his hair like moldy hay, but he loved the landlord's daughter, the landlord's red-lipped daughter, 
dumb as a dog, he listened, and he heard the robber say, One kiss, my bonny sweetheart, I'm after a prize tonight, but I shall be back with the yellow gold before the morning light. Yet if they press me sharply and harrow me through the day, then look for me by moonlight, watch for me by moonlight, I'll come to thee by moonlight, though hell should bar the way. He rose upright in the stirrups, he scarce could reach her hand, but she loosed her hair in the casement, his face burnt like a brand, as the black cascade of perfume came tumbling over his breast, and he kissed its waves in the moonlight, oh, sweet black waves in the moonlight. Then he tugged at his rein in the moonlight and galloped away to the west. He did not come in the dawning, he did not come at noon, and out of the tawny sunset, before the rise of the moon, when the road was a gypsy's ribbon, looping the purple moor, a redcoat troop came marching, marching, marching. King George's men came marching up to the old inn door. They said no word to the landlord. They drank his ale instead, but they gagged his daughter and bound her to the foot of her narrow bed. Two of them knelt at her casement with muskets at their side. There was death at every window and hell at one dark window, for Bess could see through her casement the road that he would ride. They had tied her up to attention with many a sniggering jest. They had bound a musket beside her with the muzzle beneath her breast. Now keep good watch. And they kissed her. She heard the doomed man say, look for me by moonlight. Watch for me by moonlight. I'll come to thee by moonlight, though hell should bar the way. She twisted her hands behind her, but all the knots held good. She writhed her hands till her fingers were wet with sweat or blood. They stretched and strained in the darkness, and the hours crawled by like years, till now, on the stroke of midnight, cold on the stroke of midnight, the tip of one finger touched it. The trigger, at least, was hers. The tip of one finger touched it. She strove no more for the rest. Up she stood to attention with the muzzle beneath her breast. She would not risk their hearing. She would not strive again, for the road lay bare in the moonlight, blank and bare in the moonlight, and the blood of her veins in the moonlight throbbed to her love's refrain. Had they heard it, the horse hoofs ringing clear? In the distance, were they deaf that they did not hear? Down the ribbon of moonlight. Over the brow of the hill, the highwayman came riding, riding, riding. The redcoats looked to their priming. She stood up straight and still. In the frosty silence, in the echoing night, nearer her came and nearer. Her face was like a light. Her eyes grew wide for a moment. She drew one last deep breath. Then her finger moved in the moonlight. Her musket shattered the moonlight, shattered her breast in the moonlight and warned him with her death. He turned, he spurred to the west. He did not know who stood, bowed with her hair or the mus head or the musket, drenched with her own blood. Not till dawn he heard it and his face grew gray to hear how best the landlord's daughter, the landlord's black-eyed daughter, had watched for her love in the moonlight and died in the darkness there. Back 
he spurred like a madman shrieking a curse to the sky with the white road smoking behind him and his rapier brandished high blood red were his spurs in the golden noon wine red was his velvet coat when they shot him down on the highway down like a dog on the highway and he lay in his blood on the highway with a bunch of lace at his throat and still of a winter's night they say when the wind is in the trees when the moon is a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas when the road is a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor a highwayman comes riding 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 a highwayman comes riding up to the old inn door over the cobbles he clatters and clangs in the dark inn yard he taps on his whip on the shutters but all is locked and barred. He whistles a tune to the windows and who should be waiting there but the landlord's black-eyed daughter, Bess, the landlord's daughter, plating a dark red love knot into her long black hair. And that's the end of that poem. <laughs> Epic work. It, it really Epic is. Reading. You can imagine how, when I was a young boy, how that affected me. You know, it just like yes. gave me yes, chills. Yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you read it exceptionally well. You know, there's so many questions that I want to ask. I think I'm going to take the road less traveled. Is there a relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? I know you didn't write that piece, but the way you read was exceptionally powerful, and your other work was exceptionally powerful. So is there a relationship between the two, your speaking voice and your written voice? Yes, very much. Um, In composing poetry, I compose it aloud. I compose Mm -hmm. it as if I'm reading to someone, as if I'm reading to myself. I don't compose in silence, and so the sound of the sound of my voice is very important to me when um, when I compose poetry and and obviously when I read it, and and mm-hmm. I'm trying to read poetry um, in a way that I feel it, you know. Yes. So uh, yes. I, I find that easier to obtain when when it's out loud, mm-hmm. um, and I can say that you know when I read poetry aloud to an audience. I learn Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount about the poetry. I learn a tremendous amount about the poem. I learn what's working, what's not working. Um, Yeah, so that's very much the case. Well, you're my brother from another mother because when I share poetry, read it, I live it. And I share with people that I work with, if you write it, live it. Don't be afraid of it. Live it. Yeah, I I feel exactly the same way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to know, and we're almost at the end of our journey, you know, so much is happening in our world. There's the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What do you view, Simon, as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? <clears throat> well, I'll answer the question for myself, um, because once right. again, I feel that whatever people want to write about I, I'm, I don't write very much political poetry, a little bit. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I feel the, the politics of the day intensely. Uh, and there are times when I really want to write something that relates to the politics of the day. I feel mm-hmm. um, violence and horror very deeply. I don't write very much about that. Um, for me, poetry is something that uh, really relates to how people uh, relate to one another, treat one another, uh, feel about one another. I think that there's so much to um, to dig up in that area, so much that we don't talk about for one reason or another, because 
Um, relationships are very difficult. Um, I think that that's one thing that, that um, causes that. Um, I did recently read a really exceptional poem um, that came out of the Holocaust. And, um, right. uh, you know, I, I, there aren't very many. There's a lot of poetry that's been written about the Holocaust, but um, there's not an awful lot of really good poetry. But I read, I read a poem that was and, – and, you know, that made me think that um, perhaps one day I'll, I'll have a poem uh, – uh, well, there was, you know, there's one in my book, very short poem called Refugees. Yes. I don't know. Please share. So that, okay, I'll yes. share that. It, um, and it's really a political poem. <clears throat> Refugee. Her darkness in the darkness and that she is a nihilist surprises me. All refugees think like that, she says. Who put you here? Who put me there? You'd expect her to be grateful but when she sees that in your face, she simply asks, to whom? For what? She says, all refugees think like that. Who put me there? Who put you here? Wow. Share that one again, please. I want to hear it twice. Sure. Uh, Refugee. Her darkness in the darkness, and that she is a nihilist, surprises me. All refugees think like that, she says. Who put you here? Who put me there? You'd expect her to be grateful. But when she sees that in your face, she simply asks, to whom? For what? She says, all refugees think like that. Who put me there? Who put you here? Give me a second to regroup. I think that that, that poem is a, is a poem about God, too. Yes, I think so as well. Yeah, we have some you know, so many questions. So many questions, and there's so many questions that I want to ask, but I'll ask this one. Writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to that audience. Others write because to stay silent is not an option. Why do you write, my friend? Well, I, I write because I have to, because at this point I don't have a choice. Um, I, okay. I feel the compulsion very, very strongly. And uh, I think it's likely uh, with me that um, I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> I, I'm making up okay. for all those years, those decades when I didn't write. And, uh, okay. and I always felt that I had something to say that there was an enormous amount that I wanted to say. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that I've, I've published over 1,400 aphorisms probably is a yes. pretty good indication <laughs> of that. It's an odd thing. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm generally a quiet person, but um, mm-hmm. I, for some reason I have a, a lot that I want to I get out. And I don't always know, you know, in advance what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I have my political views to be sure, but um, I, I'm not somebody who's thinking to myself, I have to go out and I have to change the politics of the world. I have to, have to do that. I, I think that my, my role is to, um, is to write and hopefully to reach some people with it. Um, if, if there's one thing that I'm really trying to do and that I think I can contribute in a small way, and that is to really um, tell people that there's just this enormous depth um, that we have to see more and more and more of, you know, um, 
I, I've been reading and looking into physics lately and uh, specifically things that relate to the multiverse and um, uh, um, the, the idea that um, uh, quantum mechanics, that we don't understand how this wor- world works. We understand physics, classical physics, mm-hmm. but we don't understand uh, quantum mechanics and we certainly don't understand how quantum mechanics and physics work. So this whole notion that we can find the beginning of the universe seems to me is um, a very strange one. Um, It comes Mm -hmm. out of a sense of pride, but whether it comes out of a sense of reality or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, we're just constantly looking deeper and deeper. And uh, and that's what I try to do with my my poetry. And, you know, sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. Yeah. May I read you one last poem? Yes, let me say this. <laughs> this this okay. will be the last one, but I wanted to say <laughs> because we've reached the end of our journey. Okay, so I'd like well, to hear one last poem. Yes. All right, this poem, Please. this poem, this poem is self-explanatory. It's called M. I referred to it earlier. Yes. Yes. Okay. In my 68th year, a woman with whom I spoke only perhaps a couple of dozen times, 30 years ago when she used to come into my bookstore in Abbotsford, always with her small children, a boy and a girl, occasionally with her quiet husband, came back to me in a dream. Her precise way of speaking, her height, her short hair, her angular shoulders, her name began with an M, I'm sure. Her kindness, her soft freckled face, and now she was before me. So precisely was it her. She spoke quietly. It was so unusual. I didn't really catch what she was saying. And then she lay down beside me. I asked her name. She would not tell me. I think she understood that I have forgotten it. She liked my red beard in those days. And the way I disagreed with her whenever she wanted to talk about life in the world. She would choose the plain meaning of a thing and I the implications of it. Then she tells me, as if I do not know, that things sometimes don't change as they appeared to be destined to. Remember my little son Henry, she asks. He died two days after I last saw you, when he was eight. I thought you might remember something about him. The effort to please God has never worked, has it, she says. She asked if I remember him. I don't, I said. I was thinking at that moment of taking her into my arms to comfort her. Strange thing, though. She held and comforted me. And then I remembered more from long ago. Her husband, he looked a little bit like me. As I recall him, he always stood behind her, was always answering the questions she put to him, but was otherwise silent. Didn't look at books either. And I don't recall him engaging with his boy and girl at all, although he may have. We were both young. It was long ago. I don't remember Henry. I wish I did. You know... So that- that's another example of synchronicity because when you mentioned that poem earlier in the show, I said to myself, I can talk to myself, I hope he reads that poem. 
I need to write it down so that I can uh, <laughs> ask him to read him. Now I see why. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Where can listeners find your work, my friend? Where can they find your work? Uh, the poetry, there's, there's a, a little bit of it online um, that has been published here and there. Um, and, of mm -hmm. course, the book, um, Brought Down, which is available from Amazon, by the way. <clears throat> um, and other than that, um, uh, if they want to write to me, uh, simon.constan okay. at gmail.com, I'm happy to send them poems. If there's something mm -hmm. that they heard mm -hmm. tonight that they would like to see, I'm very happy to send it to them. Um, and happy to yeah. chat with them as well. And, uh, you know, um, I, I do hope to publish um, the poems that I read tonight that are not in the current book. And, okay. uh, you know, I, I don't know um, when I'll be finished this book. I'm just um, at an early stage in terms of bringing these poems together. But um, mm -hmm. we'll see. The, uh, the working title of the new book is Troubled Encounters for Women and Men. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if that'll stick, but that's what it is at the moment. So, <laughs> Well, you need to come back and read from that book. Well, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. I very much enjoyed being with you, Michael. Thank you. Yes. I, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> really, I've uh, learned so much, and, uh, and honestly, I really don't want it to end, but we both need to go back to our respective worlds. Absolutely, yeah. But well, I want to thank you again. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What did you say, Michael? No, I just wanted to thank you again. So. Well, thank you. Oh, I've you enjoyed it thoroughly. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, I will be listening to, um, uh, to your podcast regularly. All right. I like that. I like that. Now, don't wait. Don't take 15 years to write that book. Because I don't know oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be a couple of years. Oh, no. Okay, all right, all right. I may be around. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Simon Constant. The book is brought Thank you down. once again, Michael. It's also available on Amazon. There's a link. So, again, I want to thank you. And to my listening audience, as I share with you every, every time we're together, that poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Good night. Take care, Simon. You too. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not 
boring. A laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.